progressive ideas, conversations from schools, and the newest concepts in education. This is the School Leadership Podcast. The ability to show the way to that big vision, to inspire those around you, and perhaps most important of all, the ability to listen. Just some of the traits that make a great and highly effective leader. And with our fantastic guests, they're at the heart of the episode you're listening to now. Hello, and welcome to the School Leadership Podcast from NAHT. The Inspiring Leadership Conference on the 28th and 29th of June this year is at the ICC in Birmingham. And one of the keynote speakers is about to talk to the NAHT's James Bowen. A former teaching fellow at Harvard, writer, politician, an exponent of an unforgettable Gangnam style on TV's Strictly. We're very pleased to welcome Ed Balls. Leadership that's inspired. Conversations that leave a mark. Leave a mark. Leave a mark. So, Ed, thank you ever so much for, for joining me today. We're, we're very much looking forward to having you come and join us at Inspiring Leadership in June. I'm really looking forward to hearing some of the stories and the experiences you've had from, from your long career, and particularly around sort of leadership. Uh, I'm hoping to get a bit of a sneak sort of preview of some of what you might talk about today. Uh, so with that in mind, the first question I was going to ask you, from your, your long career in, in politics and all the experiences you've had, what would you say are the essential qualities a leader of, of any organisation needs to have? I'm very much looking forward to coming to the conference. It will be it will be quite nostalgic for me because 10 years ago, I say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I was um, addressing lots and lots of conferences of teachers and school leaders when I was Secretary of State. So it will be a return gig for me to come back and see them all. And over the years, I've seen lots of um, different examples of uh, leadership in, in politics, national government, local government, obviously met very many school leaders. I suppose when I, th- I think about it, I would say, first of all, it's about having a, a really clear view of what you are trying to achieve, what, what the plan is, what the long-term strategy is, and being able to communicate that with, uh, with, with clarity. Secondly, it's about um, having a team around you who you believe in, who you, you trust, uh, people that can challenge you and that you're happy to be, to be, to be um, challenged, and, but then who you can trust to get on and actually do, do the job. And then, and then thirdly, it's having the flexibility to always be listening and asking yourself, is the world changing in a way which is different, which is unexpected? Are things um, going awry? Do I need to recalibrate? Because uh, it's always important to, um, to move quickly if you see that the world's changing and you need to change your tactics, even change your um, objectives and to delay, to be blinkered, to be narrow, not to be looking around you, um, I think is also um, very, very dangerous in leadership. I guess with leaders is to have to have a thick skin because it's tough being a leader and you take knocks and you take criticism. And of course, in politics, the social media storm can be very intense. Um, you have to have a thick skin, but not too thick because it's too thick. You don't hear and you don't listen and you don't um, see. And... That's, I think, also when people can make mistakes, that they're not aware of the concerns around them, the, the, the problems people are facing. But you also need to make sure that you, you are properly perceiving what's happening around you. I remember talking to Gordon Brown um, you know, about this lots and saying to him, 
you know, that I'd learned in politics, this, this kind of aphorism that you should always remember, if something goes wrong, that you should always remember it's almost certainly a cock-up. But never forget that it might be a conspiracy. And um, I remember saying that because, you know, you'd be unsurprised to know that Gordon Brown tended to see more conspiracies than, than, than he should. And often when something happens, you think, how has that happened? Why have they done that to me? Actually, it was probably, it's probably a mistake, a fluke, an error, something, somebody was thinking about something else. And to kind of, to assume the worst can really make um, big problems. But on the other hand, sometimes it is a problem. And sometimes, you know, uh, there is something happening which is more worrying, more deliberate. And if you just assume everything's a cock-up, then you miss the times when you have to be really, really concerned. So in politics, you know, always remember, it's probably a cock-up, but never forget, it might be a conspiracy. I'm really interested, you talked about that bit there, about having that long-term vision. And I guess any leader, that's one of the first things you learn is that have your vision, know your plan, but then having to uh, also deal with the unexpected. And that must have happened to you a lot in politics, where I know where I'm trying to get to, this is the ultimate goal, but, but things change very quickly and you may have to move away from that vision, or do you? I mean, how, do you how do you balance that? How did you balance that in your career, that kind of the need for the, the ultimate vision, but also being responsive to the short-term needs? I think that you have to... Um to listen to yourself. And because then you learn that sometimes you feel things are wrong or a problem. Um, you feel that sort of, that sickness in the pit of your stomach, that, that, that worry that this doesn't feel right even before you can, um, can articulate it. And I guess um, I've been involved at times where decisions were being made, which you kind of knew was a problem and you stuck with them. I mean, we, we persisted in a plan to abolish the 10p tax rate in 2007, even though we were, we were arguing that this was um, a problem. Gordon Brown was kind of determined that this was the right thing to do, and we ploughed on. I wish in retrospect I had sort of been, been tougher in pushing back. Another example, earlier on when we were at the Treasury, there was a very famous moment where we uprated pensions by inflation, Inflation was very low, and as a consequence, the basic pension went up by 75p a week. And I don't think we realised how much of a problem that was until weeks later. But at the time, I remember this, this, this unease that you know, we were sticking to this plan because that's what we decided to do, to uprate in line with inflation. But it was, um, you could feel that this, was, that this was a mistake. The toughest ones are when you have no idea at the time. So... We made a decision in 2004 not to have transitional controls for migration from Eastern Europe because we didn't think the numbers of people who had come would be, would be big at all. And that turned out to be um, a big mistake, a failure of analysis. And um, the country paid a, a big political price for that over many years. And the other part that you answer, I'm just going to ask you about, you talked there about the need for leaders to be kind of open to challenge, you know, having people in your team who are prepared, I guess, to tell you you're wrong, or at least feeling confident. That must be really hard, though. It, it is hard to create that culture. Did you work for, for leaders in your political career who were just really good at encouraging challenge? Is, there, is, is it as simple as just telling people you need to be prepared to challenge me? Or is it a bit harder than that, do you think? I think um, it's, 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 it's about how it actually happens in real time rather than what you say 
in principle. Mm. But um, of course, you need a sense of team and commonality. You need people to be signing up to um, to working together. Um, within that, you need difference, different experience, different backgrounds, different um, um, kind of track records, because that brings kind of edge and um, texture to your conversations. But fundamentally, I think leaders who pick people around them who they think will tell them they're doing well and are um, will defer, I think that's, um, that's a huge mistake. And the leaders I work for, um, for Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, absolutely wanted the people close to them to be very direct when we had worries, when we disagreed. When I became the Secretary of State in 2007, one of the big challenges I had in the early months with the, the senior civil service, I think in the Department of Education, because of the complexities of what happened in the previous years, people had got quite used to waiting for their instructions. And I wanted a, you know, an understanding with the senior civil servants that when we left the room, having made a decision, we were gonna go implement it together. But, but around the table, before we'd made the decision, everybody should say what they thought and, 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 and not be worried that to do so would, um, would, 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 would undermine your position or your standing, because you, you need to hear. Mm. And, and if you don't hear, and then afterwards people say, well, you know, I probably should have told you, that's, that's terrible. So mm. I think weak leaders appoint weaker people around them who defer, and good leaders always want people to, to challenge in the room. But then, once you've decided, than to work um, as a team to implement it. And I think you've touched a bit on there. My next question was going to be around, we've talked about the best traits that leaders should have. What about the worst traits? Are there any things that you think leaders absolutely should avoid? You know, what, what should you want <laughs> avoid in leadership? Well, I think, I, think, I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of obvious for me that it's the converse of that, uh, of those, those three points. If you don't know what you're really trying to achieve and how to do it, and you haven't got... The analysis to back it and you can't articulate your goals and you can't share that with um with, with your team and your wider stakeholders your wider community this is what we're about and um, then then you won't succeed because you'll um because you'll end up getting pushed around by by events and people will be pulling in different directions and there will be no sort of clarity about their goal um not having trust in the team but also challenge so that people feel um, that they can say what they like, but also not having people who feel that you're willing to devolve and let them get on and do the job. Once we've agreed and they've got a task, then I think a good leaders have to let people have the space to go on and implement, not to be, be trying to second guess every decision and, and breathing down people's necks. And then thirdly, people who just stick to the plan and are, aren't... Um, aware of, um, of, of things changing. I think one of the things I learned um, in my time in government is that there are sometimes foundational assumptions you have about how the world works. And sometimes those, those assumptions turn out to be wrong. And if you're not always asking yourself, am I sure the things I've always taken to be true are still true now? If you're not always challenging your core beliefs and then you can then you can then you can miss things. I suppose it makes me think about 
how important do you think it is in leadership to take people with you? And the reason that question has come to my mind, I'm thinking of sort of, you know, particularly like Tony Blair's leadership. There were times where I guess he did things where they were controversial. They're things that weren't necessarily popular, particularly within the Labour Party. Um, and I guess, but yeah, how important is it to take people with you? How important is it sometimes to shape shake things up and, and take the difficult decision that you believe to be right? I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that sort of. Well, I was first in kind of watching politics as a um, teenager in the 80s, at the beginning of the Margaret Thatcher period. I mean, in that time, consensus was a dirty word. Consensus has become you know, a label after the 1970s for, for, for not taking tough decisions, for, for drift, for, you know, uh, for not not um, be, being willing to um, change when change was needed. And so therefore, Margaret Thatcher made a virtue of being you know, the non-consensus politician. But the reality is that the only things which ever last in a, uh, a society, the only thing which governments do, the only things which leaders do in a, in a school, the only things which, um, which last are the things which become part of the consensus, part of the commonality, so that the next generation, the next generation of leaders, your successor, wants to take that on and, and carry it on. I mean, the National Minimum Wage or Bank of England Independence were very controversial at the time, but they're still here um, 30 years on, 25 years on, because they became part of the consensus. The National Health Service has been very controversial at times in our, in, our, in our history, but it's part of the consensus now because all parties agree it's the right system so so being willing to, to 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 change to argue to disagree when you need to change direction that is leadership is partly about that but it's also then about winning the hearts and minds of people that this is the right way and uh, and establishing that as the new consensus of your time one of the things i absolutely learned in my time as secretary of state in the schools world where we had you know, twenty-two thousand different head teachers all with um, their governing bodies and parents and pupils and their, their teachers. I mean, there was no way it was possible to dictate from the centre, this is what you must do day to day, hour to hour. I mean, look, there were secretaries of state who tried it. They've tried it, tried it since, but it doesn't work. The thing which works is when you persuade uh, leaders out there in the community in the individual schools that this is the right way forward and that it's something they want to be to be part of and within that you've always got to tolerate difference and experimentation um, people who want to do things um, to see if there's a better way but the consensus the leadership doesn't come from the diktat and it doesn't come from um, simply change it comes from winning hearts and minds and I think that if you if you don't do that you can have people saying after a period that is the the right thing to do I remember a school in my constituency New head teacher, big problems with discipline, decided to be kind of no nonsense, um, wanted parents to come in when one of the kids in the school got into trouble to have a meeting with the head teacher, had three months of torrid, he told me, torrid time with parents angry, why am I coming in? A year in, everybody said, you know, this is so much better because you've sorted things out, kids are learning, the lessons are better. Sometimes it's bumpy, but um, if you establish consensus, if you win hearts and minds, then you've um, then that's then I think you've shown good leadership. And it's interesting your observation about the centralised control. I know that school leaders at the moment, lots of them do feel that we are 
with a government that that is quite keen on centralized diktat and, and control and partly that's come from covid but i think there's a sense that's now sort of permeating other areas so i think people would be interested to hear that uh, my, my final it's question... true that I, I suppose the um thing is uh like in a public health crisis that's different because that is that's actually about you know kind of our our, our safety and there's certain kind of laws and rules which we always have to um to to adhere to but i think one of the things which strikes me even now um over 10 years since i was secretary of state i'll talk to a um primary school head teacher or say um we're still you know we're still implementing the rose curriculum review which you did even though actually it never finally was sort of implemented but people loved it and they thought they kind of gone and done it people will still say we're in every child matters school and i do think that um especially in the schools world, world, once people decide that they believe in something, they'll find a way to carry on um, doing it, even if the ethos has changed and some of the central kind of directives and emails are suggesting a different way. And so my final question, I think I was going to ask you, you know, throughout your career, were, were there any examples or a particular example of just excellent leadership in action, a time where you thought this is a leader at their absolute best who had a huge impact? You know, I thought that might be a good one to finish on, you know, a particular example you've got from your own career, perhaps. Given that I work very closely with two prime ministers, I should, probably should two choose one from each of them. One of the, the nature of working for Blair and Brown is that it was always important to have a bit of balance and to, to, to include both. And I think they're going to give you quite different ones because with Gordon Brown, you could talk about um, you know, the response to the global financial crisis, which was, um, it was amazing what he and Alistair Darling did to corral the world into to action to stop a depression in 2007, 2008. But actually, I think the thing I was thought was most powerful I was involved in with him was the decision to raise national insurance for the health service in 2002. We knew there was a problem of underfunding in the health service. We knew it needed um, long-term reform. We knew we needed a long-term funding settlement. It was going to be hard to win that argument. And we spent two years preparing. We had a big review done by a guy called um, Wanless um, to, to, to establish the parameters. We went to um, to all the newspapers to 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 win the argument after the interim report. It was very controversial. Lots of reforms followed from it. But I think by the time we got to 2010, eight years later, when David Cameron, the new prime minister, said, I'm going to cut the deficit, not the National Health Service. I think at that point, we knew that we'd kind of won that long-term argument. And it was, it was, it was careful. It was long-term. It was considered. We knew what we were doing. Um, it was it was controversial, but um. I think that was a great piece of leadership. But Tony Blair, I'm going to pick something much more maybe unusual, that very early on in his, um, his time as Prime Minister, when Princess Diana suddenly, uh, tragically died in a car crash in Paris, and um, Tony Blair, not just in the first hours when he talked about the people's princess, but over the following week when... The, I think the country was in a real state about this, but the, the royal family didn't quite know how to deal with it. And there, there was a real, I think, risk he felt that um, this could be very damaging to the, to the monarchy. And I think he, he managed to find a way in those days sensitively to articulate how the country felt 
and about um, about that moment in a way which allowed um, the royal family to kind of to acknowledge that too and to become part of it. And I thought, you know, it's it's a very different style, but it's a very um, it was a very skillful, important piece of national leadership. I remember um, talking to a friend of mine when Obama, um, when Barack and Michelle Obama came to um, the UK to visit um, in that period, and there was a a, um, a barbecue, uh, and which they were at, and how afterwards everybody felt that they'd been spoken to personally by the, one of the two or other of them in a way which made people feel that they really cared and they were really interested and they really valued what was happening in the relationship with the UK, uh, but people felt that very personally. And sometimes those, sometimes leadership is about um, the big vision, the future of the National Health Service. Sometimes it's just about, it's about articulating how people feel at an important moment. But sometimes leadership can just be about the ability to inspire the people around you to, to, to believe and feel optimistic and hopeful. And in their very different ways, those are three examples of great leadership. Thank you ever so much uh, for joining me this morning, Ed. We're really looking forward to you being with us in June for the Inspiring Leadership Conference. I'm hoping we might hear some more stories and get more of your reflections on, on leadership at that conference. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm looking forward to it. And the eighth annual Inspiring Leadership Conference website is inspiringleadership.org. That's inspiringleadership.org. And on there, you can book one of four types of registration. And it's a big thanks to Ed Balls, who you can see at the conference this year. All episodes of the School Leadership Podcast are available on the best-known podcast apps, and subscribing is an extremely good thing to do. Any feedback, of course, you have for us or any guest suggestions, they'd be really useful to hear. And the same goes, of course, if you can write a review of the podcast online. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT member, go online to naht.org.uk forward slash join. On social media, you can chat to us via our Twitter account, which is at NAHT News. Look out for our next episode, which is next month. In the meantime, take care. For regular and useful content on the teaching profession, it has to be the School Leadership Podcast. The School Leadership Podcast. The School Leadership Podcast. The School Leadership Podcast.